All right, excellent singing this morning. It was great to hear you uh, sing praise to the Lord and look forward to being able to praise him now through our close attention to the Word of God. Uh, We'll be looking at Romans chapter 3 this morning, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at the final five verses of the chapter, verses 27 through 31. Um, It's been... uh, Great to hear you sing. I just love to hear you sing. One of the best parts about sitting up front, a little plug for the second row here that has no one in it. Uh, One of the (laughs) best parts of singing up front is you get to hear everyone singing at you. You know, so it's just a joy to hear you sing and praise to the Lord and um, great songs. I love the hallelujah, what a savior. And uh, well, all of them were, were good. So thank you for that. Romans Chapter 3, verses 27 through 31 is where we'll be looking at this morning. Sometimes uh, people's actions make us question their motives. Maybe we see or hear a report of what someone did. But we need to know more. In our current political climate, We regularly hear about some new conflict or dispute between people that we've never met before. And many times there's pressure placed upon us to make judgments about who is right and who is wrong. Uh, Just this past week, there was a video clip that went viral. And uh, so uh, we find ourselves in these situations where we're trying to figure out what actually happened. Now, sometimes it might be possible to hear or see the dispute and make an immediate decision about who was right and who was wrong, uh, especially when there's just some egregious violation of someone's moral rights or something. Most times, however, uh, we are wise to ask questions if we feel compelled to draw conclusions in these things. We might ask questions like this. Can I trust this media source? Or we can ask, what actually happened? What kind of evidence is there to demonstrate who was right and who was wrong? And if we can get all of those questions answered, there's still one more question that is important to answer, and that is, why? Why did the person act or respond in that way. And understanding one's motives can make all the difference in the world. Was he defending himself? Or is there something before or after the brief video clip that would be important regarding the motive of the individual? This morning we'll consider a passage where Paul unfolds why God acted the way he did in justification. More specifically, we'll learn why justification by faith in Jesus matters. Of course, we are part of a Protestant faith, right? And so we have heard preached to us very frequently, sola fide, faith alone, justification by faith alone. And so Even if you're not the brightest bulb in the closet, you know, there's something about faith being the means of justification that's important. 
Well, in this passage, we'll get to consider from God's perspective why justification by faith in Jesus matters. In a sense, we'll get to look into the mind of God a little bit, into the heart of God to determine why he did this. So the aim of our sermon is to show you how justification by faith in Jesus matters and to remind you of the fundamental heart attitude that it requires. There's no higher or better way. There's actually no other way for people to be saved and for all of God's redemptive purposes to be accomplished. It is by faith in Jesus and this is so for many reasons that we'll get to learn about today. Now, in our previous passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, we saw Paul unfolding the densest, most theological sentence about the gospel anywhere in the Bible. Uh, it's uh, kind of an interesting time. There's some traveling going on uh, in our congregation. So if you weren't here last week, you missed, I opened the sermon with, I lined up a bunch of theologians, gave pictures of all these old guys, some dead, on the PowerPoint and I gave their perspective on Romans 3, 21 through 26, one sentence. And they seemed to try to outdo each other in their accolades for how important that passage was. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go back and consider that passage a bit more. But in that passage, we saw that God justifies not on the basis of works of the law, but on faith. We saw that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross defends God's character in showing mercy to wicked sinners. One preacher said it vindicates God's character. And although God does justify sinners, he remains just because of the unique, sinless, perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last week. In our passage this morning, Paul brings things to clear, practical conclusions. More specifically, in verses 27 through 41, we, we find four divine incentives or motives for justification by faith. Now, in the passage, he's going to do something that we've seen before in Romans, especially even in Romans 3, that, but we haven't seen it for a while. He will create a debate with an imaginary partner like he did at the beginning of Romans 3. And here he'll ask questions, and these questions follow a pattern. I want you to just see this. I think if you can see the the way the passage fits together, then you'll have a really good lead on what it means. Okay, so there are four sections in Romans 3, 27 through 31, just those five verses, four sections. Okay, they all have questions and answers. The uh, first and the last are very simple. The first uh, and last section have one question and one answer. And the answer is always very simple, brief. So you can see this in verse 27. Look in your Bible at verse 27, first part of the verse. And what becomes of boasting? That's the first question. Answer, it is excluded. Okay, so that's the first section. You can see it as well in verse 31 down at the end. Do we then overflow, overthrow the law By this faith. That's the question. Here's the answer. By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so there's this pattern in the first and the last sections. There's one question followed by one answer. In the middle two sections, there's a pattern as well. There's a double question, two questions, followed by one answer 
and some support. So I'll show you this. Look in your Bible at the middle of verse 27. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Two questions. Answer, no, but by the law of faith. Then verse 28, for we hold. That's supporting his answer. And he does it again in verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? One question. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Double question. Yes, of Gentiles also. Answer, and then verse 30, support. So very simply, that's how it's arranged. Now, there's one other thing I want you to see about this. I think each one of those four sections, in my opinion, uh, give a divine incentive for justifying people by faith in Jesus. Okay, so each section makes one point. So I've got four points uh, in the sermon today. So hopefully that wasn't too technical. We can now jump in to the first point that he makes about justification by faith. Justification by faith matters because, first, Justification by faith matters because it destroys human boasting. This is made by the first question and answer. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting is is excluded. The argument is justification by faith matters because it destroys all human boasting. Now, in Paul's debate, he starts with a question here. The question starts with the word then or therefore, which goes back to the passage we just looked at, because Paul's drawing a conclusion through this question and answer about justification by faith in Jesus. The question he asks is, what becomes of boasting? And to fully grasp that, we have to understand the word boasting. All right, we have to understand the word boasting. The word boasting refers to demonstrating pride in one's accomplishments. And so when we see this word for boasting in our Bibles, we should think of pride. Pride, that's the sin. Pride is that the root of boasting. By the way, I think pride is at the root of just about all sins in the world around us. Pride. Normally, because of the fall, we boast in self because we are proud. By nature, we think we can establish a claim on God because of our own performance or works. You see, it is possible, I think, for us to make anything a source of pride. Right? We can become proud of our prayers, the way we pray, or our commitment to prayer. We can become proud of preaching. One of my favorite quotes on this was A.T. Robertson over a hundred years ago. He said, many preachers use the pulpit as a pedestal to hang garlands of praise for their own glory. Prayer can be a form of boasting. Preaching can be a form of singing. We love our singing here today. I think you're a great singer, but you know, it can be a form of, of pride, even in a corporate setting like this. Even humility, right? How ironic. We can become proud of how humble we are. And it's possible for any man or woman, boy or girl, to be proud. Matter of fact, it's highly likely that we are. 
Spurgeon uh, said it quite well. He had a quote about this, and I'll put the whole quote there. You might not be able to read it all, but I'll read it to you. It says, There may be as much pride inside a beggar's rags as in a prince's robe. And a harlot may be as proud as a model of chastity. Pride is a strange creature. It never objects to its lodgings. It will live comfortably enough in a palace, and it will live equally at its ease in a hovel. Is there any man in whose heart pride does not lurk? Spurgeon says. Now consider the warnings of Scripture about pride. I just took a few of them. I could take the, you know, we could have two sermons today. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider, not your own lips. Proverbs 18 verse 12 says, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. You might know this one. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. In Proverbs 26, the author asks, Do you see a person wise in his own Eyes, his answer immediately following is, there is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 8 and verse 13, God tells us exactly what he thinks about pride. He says, pride and arrogancy do I hate. Proverbs fifteen twenty five: the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. God says in Psalm 101, Uh, Whoever has a haughty look and a proud heart, I will not endure. Near the end of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, has God saying this, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, says the Lord God of hosts. These are just a few of the hundreds of verses in the Bible about pride. Yet in Romans, what do we learn? Romans uh, has Paul considering what happens to human boasting when justification comes through faith. And his answer in verse 27 is short. Boasting, human boasting, sinful human boasting is entirely excluded. Now the word excluded is a rare word used only one other time in the whole Bible and it's used by Paul. Paul uses it in the book of Galatians. And when he's using this word, this verb in Galatians, he's using it of what false teachers were doing to the Galatian believers. These false teachers wanted to isolate them from Paul and other believers. And in the text, uh, Galatians, uh, in Galatians, in the text where this is used, uh, Paul says that, um, that these false teachers wanted to, and, and this is the, the verb here, he wanted, they wanted to shut them off completely from the apostles. They wanted to exclude them. Shut them off completely. And so in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that human boasting is shut off entirely because God's saving justification comes by faith. The point is simple. And clear, but I will cite one theologian and what he says about this. Frank Tillman says, because human deliverance from sin and divine wrath is a matter of trust in God and his free gift of atonement and the death of Christ, he says this. He says, ready? No room is left for human boasting. Since it's a free gift and it comes only by faith, no room is left for human boasting. 
You see, one of God's incentives for doing the things, doing these things the way he does in justification is to stop boasting. As a matter of fact, the verb excluded is a passive. It is uh, what, what theologians would call a divine passive. This is something God does to boasting. It is entirely excluded by him. He shuts off any ground for human boasting in sending a son to deliver us. You see, we have nothing to offer to God except our filth and our mess and our unrighteousness. And men and women, may this be one of our fundamental daily convictions of soul. After failure, we should avoid saying things like this. This is not me. Or, I'm not like this. You know me better than this. When I hear this, uh, my new commitment is to say, well, yes, I do know you. And that's exactly how you are. That's exactly how we are, all of us. We just sang the song, guilty, vile, and helpless. Who? We. Spotless Lamb of God was He. The song sings, hallelujah, what a saint, right? Is that what it says? (laughs) Hallelujah, what a saint. I haven't found anyone like you. No. Hallelujah, what a savior. What a savior. So I ask you, are you proud? What sin or strife in your life or relationships this week comes because of pride? Do you speak or think of your own righteousness? Men and women, that is not gospel. That is anti-gospel. That's what caused Lucifer to fall. That's what caused each one of us to fall. Now Paul continues to keep his focus on boasting in his second point made in verses 27 and 28. And so uh, as a way of just kind of adding to that first argument, he says more specifically justification by faith eliminates boasting in works. Look at the middle of verse 27. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now here uh, it gets tricky, right? We run into a double question. Uh, a double question. And uh, the, the two questions kind of have an implied question behind it. How is boasting excluded? Well, boasting, it, Paul asks, is boasting excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? And uh, then he'll give an answer. Now, in the question, we have to deal with this familiar Romans word again that we've been dealing with starting in Romans 3, and that's the word law. Up until this point, we have said that the word law in Romans can be used in one of three ways. Hopefully you remember this. It can be used of the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. Or the word law can be used of the entire Old Testament Scriptures. So like if the psalmist says he wants to meditate on the law, he might mean the Pentateuch or it could just mean the whole Testament. But we said the word law could also be used to describe the Mosaic Law Code, a section of regulations. uh, So it could be the Mosaic Law, right? The regulations in Exodus through Deuteronomy. To that... Most people think you should probably add a fourth way to use law, and that might be how it's used here. 
that the word law in Romans can also at times mean or speak about rules generally, a set or system of rules or laws. And so some would translate this a rule or standard. And so Paul asks if boasting has been excluded through a system of law that relies on works. And his answer is no. No, but through a system of rules or laws that relies on faith. I think Paul sees the new covenant in Jesus as being based on faith, not upon works. And to support that, he goes to verse 28 and he says, we hold that justification comes through faith apart from or without works or deeds done as commanded in the law of Moses. Here I think Paul is talking about what genuine believers think about how someone is justified. We are justified by faith alone and this prevents us from boasting in our own works. And so, uh, All boasting in works is eliminated. Perhaps there's uh, no better way to close off this second point, which again, one and two are kind of together here, than by quoting Galatians 6 verse 14. Do you know that verse? Galatians 6 14, Paul says this, he says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So as we close these first two points, may I just say to God, Lord, would you please help us as a congregation put to death our pride and self-confidence in our works? Well, that leads to a third reason why justification by faith matters. It matters because it demonstrates God's universal lordship. That's how I would summarize verses 29 and 30. And these are a little bit harder. So we dig in in verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, also. Or yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the double question is pretty easy at the beginning. And Paul's here appealing to what both Judaism and Christianity believe, that there's only one God. Appealing to the conviction that God is not only the God of Israel, but he's also the God of the whole world. And so he asks, you know, is he just of Israel or of Gentiles also? The answer is simple. Yes, of the Gentiles also. God is the God of all the nations. And then The support is where it gets challenging. Verse 30 caused me a lot of turmoil this week. Verse 30. As support for his answer, Paul gives a conditional clause here. It can be translated something like this. If indeed God is one, then he'll justify the circumcised and uncircumcised by faith. Now, Paul states this condition in a way that invites his readers to agree with this basic Jewish and Christian belief in the oneness of God. If we had time, I'd take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. You remember that passage? Uh, where it's the Shema of Israel and uh, the text says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? 
he's one. Okay, so foundational premise of Judaism is that there is one God. But in the New Testament, that same idea is articulated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You knew I'd go to 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, Paul says, There is no God but one. This is a foundational understanding of both Judaism and Christianity. There is only one God. Now, what I think Paul is doing in this phrase, verse 30, when he says, since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, what I think he's doing, I put in the little gray summary box at the bottom of your handout or at the bottom of this section of your handout. I think what's going on is this. Paul plays off the idea of God's oneness to speak of his sameness. Now you say, well, that makes no... (laughs) Thanks for making it muddy. Well, it's a tough verse. The one God of the universe treats all people the same way when it comes to justification. God offers justification to everyone in the same way by faith in Jesus. You see, from the one God comes one way to be saved. Consequently, justification by faith in Jesus matters because it demonstrates God is the universal Lord over the whole earth. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter what continent you live on, there is one way to be saved, and that is to go to the one God of this world through his son, Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus matters because it demonstrates God's universal sovereignty. Okay? Now, the last reason is verse 31. Finally, Paul closes with a simple question and answer here to show that justification by faith upholds the law. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Paul's final question involves how faith in Jesus relates to the law of Moses again. He starts out by asking if faith over uh, throws. I should have practiced this. <laughs> Keep wanting to say overflows. <laughs> Overthrows the law. Now the word overthrow could mean abolish or nullify or do away with, but we need to look more at the second half of the verse to understand which specific nuance it carries. It's because the word overthrow, hopefully that's the last time I'll say it, uh, stands in antithesis to the word uphold. It's the exact opposite. And so Paul's answer comes in verse 31, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul asks, does faith overthrow the law of Moses? And his answer is, no way, on the contrary, we uphold it. Now Paul's answer in verse 31 is simply stated, but it can be understood in a few different ways. Fundamentally, What it means is that believers in Jesus Christ somehow uphold Moses' law instead of abolishing it or nullifying it. But how do we uphold it? How do we establish or confirm it? 
Now, if you're familiar with what Paul says about believers and whether they're under the law of Moses in other places, his answer here is one you wouldn't expect. In different places, you know, if we ask Paul, does faith in Jesus Christ abolish the law of Moses? We'd expect him to say, yes, most certainly it does. According to other places in Paul, and I, I kind of summarize these, brought these all together, all of the verbs used about the law of Moses in Paul. According to uh, Paul, the law of Moses is annulled, taken away, voided, abolished, destroyed, weak, obsolete, cast out, invalid, repealed, obliterated, eliminated, removed, replaced, nullified, abrogated, and ended. Thus, we as believers are dead to, not bound by, free from, redeemed from, liberated by death from, removed from, not ruled by, not keeping, not under, and apart from the law of Moses. I'm not making this up. That's what Paul says. The case is so strong in Paul's writings, one scholar says it this way. I love this little quote here. It says, With only the slightest amount of hyperbole, it would seem that every conceivable and available Greek term, legal or otherwise, that could have been used to speak of the abolition and annulment of the law of Moses was used. He says, had the word kibosh existed in the first century, I have no doubt that the New Testament, probably Paul, would would have used it to put the kibosh on the law of Moses. That's the answer we might expect, but here he surprises us. While we are not under the regulations of the law of Moses or bound to obey its commands, we somehow uphold it. The word itself means we establish or confirm the law. So how can we understand it? There are three ways I think you could answer this. And I'll just go very briefly through this. And I'm sure when I share these, you probably will hold one of them. And if I disagree with you, sorry. How do we... How does justification by faith in Jesus uphold or confirm the law of Moses? It may be that we confirm, believers confirm the law of Moses by obeying its moral demands. This idea is very popular. It's actually called reform view the law. And it's the idea that we have to go back into the Old Testament and find the moral parts of the commands that God gave to Moses. And those are the ones that we need to obey. This answer is a theological answer, and it's not necessarily a biblical one. Sometimes we have to like pull the passage together and try to figure it out. There's no clear passage in the Bible where it tells us that. I think there are better answers. I think Romans itself answers the question for us from different passages. Consequently, I think Romans tells us the answer is twofold. And so, just to be clear, I think both number two and number three are right. So I put a little line there. Because if you hold number one, that's just you. I'm not with you. Okay, but two and three. And what I want to do is just show you little pieces of Romans that I think help us understand this. First, uh, we uphold the law of Moses through the sinless obedience and perfect righteousness of Jesus. You can turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. The idea here is that Christ, Jesus Fulfilled what the law commanded. So believers uphold the law because they are in Christ. See, like what he did, I get, I get. He perfectly obeyed the law of Moses. He upheld it perfectly. So because I'm in Jesus, 
That's how believers affirm or uphold. It's like not even what we do. It's what Jesus does for us. Romans 8 says it this way. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For for God has done what the law, I think that's the Mosaic law, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so by justifying people through faith in Jesus Christ, the law is confirmed or established. It's fulfilled, as the text says here. As we are in Christ Jesus and his perfect righteousness, we meet all of the requirements of the law of Moses. Now, I would add to that this other idea that I think Romans also attributes. I think, you know, what does it mean that we uphold the law? Well, we uphold it in Christ Jesus. But then I think we also uphold it in sanctification by loving God and others through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, which is fulfilling the goal or the intention of the law of Moses. This is what the law of Moses was aiming at all the time. Hopefully you stayed in Romans. Look at verse 4. I'm sorry, Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Go to Romans 13. I think it can help shed even more light on this third idea. We confirm the law by loving God and others. This is how we uphold it. Romans 13 and verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Where do you get this? Exodus. Mosaic law code. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we uphold the law by loving others as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't abolish the law of Moses, but through the Spirit we hit its target, which is love. Remember, Jesus himself said that you could, you could uh, when, when asked about what the most important commandments were in the law, he says you Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So far from being abolished, the law is confirmed or upheld by believers being in Christ and demonstrating the law's goal, love, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Men and women, do you realize what we have in this passage? 
Do you know what God has done here? He has given us his motives. What an astounding privilege it is to consider this with you today. What a blessing to hear God's motives. Don't just write down these four points and forget them. Don't say, oh, I wish the preacher would have used more stories or illustrations. We have a glimpse into the mind of God for why he justifies people by faith. So we ask God, God, why do you justify by faith in Jesus? And God smiles and says, Well, it eliminates all human boasting. Every ounce of it. So that no one can boast in their own works. It testifies to my universal lordship. There's one God. One way to be saved. And it actually confirms or establishes the law by believers being in Jesus and by them loving others. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. We are so unworthy. We don't deserve to see a passage like this where the author of Scripture so clearly lays out why you would save people through your Son, Jesus. There are perhaps a whole multitude of ways they answer. the question could be answered, but in this passage you answer it for us. Lord, help us not to boast in self. It's just our natural impulse. It's our sinful impulse. After failures, might we not say things like, well, well, this is not me. This is not how I am. And after victories, may we not just subtly look for ways to have people give us praise or boast, boast in ourselves. Lord, may we rejoice in your one, your oneness how you offer salvation as well in one way through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you that you would in Jesus make it possible for us to establish what the law was always looking for. Lord, these are deep things. These are glorious things. I'm thankful for Romans, but I pray that you would help us to love others the way the text says. Love God. If we take the Ten Commandments, it's love God, love neighbor. Lord, help us to more accurately, more consistently love. Help us to put to death pride. Put to death pride in its various forms so that we could love. And thank you for the reminder in the gospel.
that we have nothing of ourselves to bring and that we need a Savior. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.